be making your way to Revelation 17. And while you're making your way there, um, we want to say some official goodbyes to Donald Talon. He did his birthdays again this morning. Denise, have you had a birthday recently? It's been good knowing you, Donald. You've been a good friend. We've been friends for about 25 years or so, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. If there's any way when you get over on the other side of the river, if you can look back and holler right here, yeah, I'd appreciate it. All right. Revelation 17. As you find your place there, would you stand with us, please, if you can? And you will. We'll honor the Word of God by standing for the reading of our text from the Scriptures this morning. I'm interested in the fall of religious Babylon. The fall of religious Babylon. Revelation 17, the entire chapter. The Bible says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vows, and taught with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written, in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth. And is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no, no kingdom uh, as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords, and king of kings, and all God's people said. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. 
And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Warren Chapman, would you pray for us, please? And thank you for standing. The fall of religious Babylon. You know, in our journey through Revelation, we have come to certain places, and then we would pause for a break or a parenthetical. We would have details filled in. We'd go so much further, and then we pause, and the Lord through his scriptures, fills in a few more of the details. So it is with chapter 17 and chapter number 18 of Revelation. Really, when you come to the end of chapter number 16, you come to the end of the tribulation. The next event, as far as the world is concerned at this point, the next event to be expected upon the earth is when Jesus comes back with his people. Now, that won't take place until we get to chapter 19. In chapters 17 and 18, you're going to find the fall of Babylon, right? There's uh, two aspects of that, but there'll be the fall of Babylon. Look back at chapter 14. Notice with me verse number 8. And, and of course, what you're going to get is this fill-in again. You remember the largest section where we had some, some area filled in for us was chapters 12, 13, and 14. Remember, we kind of pulled that section out. It spans the whole of the tribulation. And then that, after we finish with chapter number 14, we get right back in the progression of things. And so it will be uh, regarding chapters 17 and 18. In chapter 17 of Revelation, you see this one world religious system that will be implemented during the tribulation period. It's going to fall. Look at chapter 14, verse 8, just as a reminder. Chapter 14, verse 8, we've already been anticipating this fall of religious Babylon. Chapter 14, verse 8 says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Look at chapter 16, verse 19. We only read in closing this verse last week. But here's another verse that lends itself to the fall of Babylon. Chapter 16, verse 19 says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon, (coughs) excuse me, great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the wine of the wrath of the fierce, the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So in chapter 14, verse 8, chapter 16, verse 19, we've been anticipating the fall of Babylon because it's been recorded that Babylon's going to fall, and she will fall. Babylon will fall. Um, when you come here to chapters 17, and then again, uh, we'll look probably two messages at chapter 18, you see this fall um, pre-recorded. We all are aware of the fact that biblical prophecy is simply history pre-written, the foretelling of God. It's going to happen just like it's recorded that it will happen. You look with me at chapter 17, where we've read here. Look with me at the first verse. This first verse says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vows, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And so then this progression will begin, the judgment of Babylon. In chapter number 17, you have the judgment of religious Babylon. In chapter number 18, you'll have the fall, the judgment of uh, commercial Babylon. 
this economical system that's going to be implemented, this worldwide system that's going to be uh, very pronounced during the days of uh, the tribulation. And so chapters 17 and 18, again, we have the chronological flow of the happenings, the end-time events, interrupted again, right? There's a pause again, chapter 17 and 18, and we have some of these blanks filled in for us, uh, some details given, and uh, you know as well as I, we've had these judgments, they've been prophesied, now we see them being actually poured out, being poured out. It's going to be a one-world religious system. The Bible calls it here the great whore calls it Babylon. It's going to be a one-world economical system, monetary type of a system. I was reading this past week, perhaps some of you read it, where Amazon now uh, are implementing a thing with your handprint. Uh, You're going to be able to walk through without even scanning your hand. They're already scanning the palm prints. They're trying it out in different parts of the world. But you're going to one day soon be able to walk into the grocery store Get your items, they'll be in your basket, and you won't even have to stop and say, I've got this and that and the other. It'll be scanned in your handprint. Uh, We'll tell them whether or not you've got the finances in your account. Now, we don't know all about the mark of the beast, but you remember we spent one message on the mark of the beast. We don't know all that entails, but we're moving moving rapidly in this world to that particular time, uh, that particular time in the grand scheme of it all. Now, behind it all is Satan. Satan, Superman, is going to be the Antichrist. We've talked some about him. And his, um, his go-to man is going to be the false prophet. And we won't have time to dig out in detail chapter 17 nor go elsewhere. But if you mark it down, the Antichrist is going to use this religious system in the world to accomplish his purposes. And as you see toward the end of this chapter, When he's done, he'll do just like the devil his father does. When he's done using and abusing religious Babylon, son, he's going to water up and throw in a wastebasket. And that's just the way the devil operates. He'll use you for anything he can get out of you. He'll exploit you. When he's done with you, he'll throw you away, and he'll care nothing about the misery that he has put you in. You'll have to deal with that at that point. That's just the way the devil operates, isn't it? Never produces what he promises. Always promises more than he gives. That's just the way the devil is. You're sitting here today and you put a for sale sign up. If you want to be popular amongst a certain group of people, put your for sale sign up. He'll buy you out. He's got the goods. He'll buy you out. But when he's done with you, I'll promise you, you'll you'll live a life of regret from here to the cemetery. It's just the way the devil operates. Now, you're mindful as you come to chapter number 17. We've dealt with this time or two. The devil's religious. It ought not surprise you that I've said that this morning. He's a religious creature. He's a religious being. We believe he was the heavenly choirster before he was cast out of heaven. We do not believe the devil's eternal, right? In the sense, we don't believe there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, and Lucifer now known as Satan. We don't believe that. We believe he was created just like every other angel was created. But now he, uh, pride, swelled up in his own heart, and his mind. He thought he deserved. Uh, the applause and the praise and the worship that, that God received. And so he thought he'd overthrow the throne of God. He's a religious person. He, does, he loves to worship, uh, but uh, he wants you to worship him today. There are many who do worship him. But the world's going to become very, very religious. This Babylonian system, this Babylonish 
worship. I'll say more about that in just a moment. As a matter of fact, be finding, if you will, in your Bible, Genesis chapter number 11. And we can't spend a lot of time there, but I do want to point out um, in, in Bible study, when you go to study your Bible, there is the, the law of first mention, right? When you find something in the Bible, find where it's first mentioned. And you'll, you'll, find some, you'll find some truth or principle or uh, some thoughts surrounded that first time something is mentioned. You'll find that that will be traced throughout the Word of God. But uh, right here in this chapter, while you're finding yourself, uh, finding your way, making your way over to, uh, to Genesis 11, I'll say something about the Tower of Babel and what happened there and uh, where we get this Babylonian uh, ideology to begin with. But here, this Babylonian system in our uh, system of worship that's found here in chapter number 17 is called the great whore. And one of the reasons why is because of the seductiveness, the seductive powers that uh, this system of worship will uh, present uh, in its day. The Bible, the Bible not only calls it the great whore, but calls it Babylon uh, the great. Now, Babylon in the Bible speaks of two things. Number one, it speaks of a place. And number two, it speaks of a system, as we just mentioned. The place properly is known in what we know to be modern-day Iraq. That's where Babylon, that's where the Tower of Babel, we believe, was, uh, was erected at the time. And then this system is, uh, it's, it's a false worship that this world... By the way, I, I can tell you, I may not be able to tell you the address, but I can tell you something about everybody in the house today. Everybody here today is a religious, a religious being. There's something on the inside of you that reaches either inward toward yourself, outward toward something else, or upward toward God. I'll promise you there's something on the inside of you. You may worship yourself. You may worship a career. You may worship your clique you run with. You may worship uh, some novel, something you own. Uh, You may worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and I trust that you do that. But now the devil knows how to play on a man's uh, desire to worship and reach beyond himself or reach beyond herself. In Genesis chapter number 11, Genesis chapter number 11, somebody has said, and I agree with this, that if you can get the first 11 chapters of Genesis right, you'll probably get all the Bible right. If you'll divide it and understand what's going on in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, that you'll probably get the rest of the interpretation of the Bible right. I I agree with that, Donald. I I really do. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the book of Genesis is the seed plot of the Bible, right? Every major doctrine and every major movement that you're going to see throughout Exodus, from Exodus throughout the book of Revelation, uh, has its seed form somewhere in the book of Genesis. There are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Chapter number one, you start with the most God-centered chapter in all the Bible. The Holy Spirit never one time told Moses when he pinned down the book of Genesis in the first chapter to prove that there's a God. He never one time in all of Scripture does that. Uh, Beloved, we step out on the belief and the knowledge that God is. In the beginning, God. Some some believe that the Bible begins with creation. It doesn't do any such of a thing. It begins with God. All of our theology ought to begin with God. All our reasoning ought to begin with God. Our Bible begins with God, and we ought to begin with God. You say, but preacher, I just don't feel. I don't care how you feel. You ought to begin with God. Scratch your feelings for a while. Stay with God. Let him work things out. Stay with his principle. Honor him and see if he wants to honor your faithfulness to him. Fifty chapters. You start out with the most God-centered chapter in all the Bible, chapter number one. And then you end in despair, don't you? The last few words of the book of Genesis are these. In a coffin, 
in Egypt. Uh, the hope's gone, right? Joseph's dead. His body's in a coffin. A coffin means hope chest. And so we need some hope. Thank God hope's on the way. It'll take 430 years, but hope's on the way. And it's seen in type in the Passover lamb in the book of, in the book of Exodus. I didn't mean to get off on this. But in the book of Genesis, 50 chapters there are two large divisions. Chapters 1 through 11 is your first major division. Chapters 12 to 50 is your second. In the first major division, you find the beginning uh, of uh, the human race, right? And you find that you're introduced to the federal head of the human race. His name is Mr. Adam. In the second portion, the second large division, you find the beginning of the Hebrew race. And the federal head of the Hebrew race is a fellow by the name of Abram. He's not always called Abraham. Old Dr. Way used to say he didn't get to ham till he started tithing. Amen. If you know the text over there, you know what I'm talking about. He tithed after the order of Melchizedek, which has no beginning and no ending in Scripture. I believe he was a literal man. Some believe he was Christ. But nevertheless, both of those divisions has another four subdivisions, right? Just take, uh, just take that last division, chapters 12 to 50. It's divided under four patriarchs. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and Joseph. And if you can get that, you can interpret that, uh, that last division of the book of Genesis. The first one has four subdivisions, right? The beginning of the human race, chapters 1 through 11. First of all, there's creation, chapters 1 and 2. There's the fall of man. You better get that right. You'll be messed up in other places. In chapter number 3, there is Noah. There's the flood. There's the ark. And uh, that's chapters 6 through 9. And then there's the Tower of Babel. Everybody spoke the same language uh, up until this event that you're going to read about here in Genesis Chapter number 11. Look with me, if you will, verses 1 through 9. The Bible says, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them truly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city. And a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language." And, of course, you know the Tower of Babel, uh, just Babel itself, chatter, uh, all the languages of the earth that are now uh, across the globe. Uh, they, were, uh, they were given at this time. Man spoke one language until here at the Tower of Babel, that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, uh, so the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Let me point out two or three verses here and just give you an idea of what was going on at the Tower of Babel and the mindset of the people uh, that, uh, that here worked on the Tower of Babel. Look at verse number 2. Notice some of the features of these people. First of all, they are a sinful people, sinful, a wicked people. Uh, sinful people. Verse number two, and it came to pass as they journeyed, mark this, from the east. It's interesting. It doesn't say from the north or the south or the west. 
says, as they journeyed from the east. Now, this is literal language, but also figurative. Most scholars believe that being as the sun rises from the east, it is symbolic in the sense that to move from the east simply meant they were turning their back on light. And a lot of people do that today. We could care less. We, we, we couldn't care less what the Bible says. I mean, after all, who cares what the Bible says? Do you know to turn your back upon the Word of God is to turn your back upon light, the light of Scripture? Notice with me, if you will, in verses 3 and 4, I'm going to lay emphasis on these personal pronouns to show you they were a very selfish people, very selfish, very self-centered people. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see, the Tower of Babel is all about the flesh. It's all about the works of man. The Tower of Babel is. It's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's all about us and we and, and our toys. That's what it's all about. You see, man in his humanistic reasoning, it's seen even in our day, says no God, no God for me, no God for us, no church for us, no Bible for us, no preaching for us, no Sunday school for us. Uh, We need uh, no rules to restrain us or constrain us. Uh, We don't want anything like that, and so therefore, no God for me. And and then notice with me in verse number 4, they're distorted. They're distorted in their mindset. Uh, Man left to himself... Uh, if he will continue to be left to himself, God may just very well give him over to a reprobate mind. Look at verse number four. They're very distorted uh, in their thought processes. Verse number four, the Bible says, And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, what did they want in verse number four? They wanted two things. They wanted two things. Number one, they wanted a city. Number two, they wanted a tower. The city speaks of their physical longings. They wanted luxury and ease. They wanted to be able to sit back and relax and kick back uh, like Hollywood. You understand what I'm saying, I hope? Uh, that, That spoke to their physical longings. The tower speaks to their spiritual longings. Let me show you a misconception. If you'll mark the words right here in verse number four, uh, the the words where the Bible says, may reach. If you've got a King James Bible that's properly printed, those words, uh, beloved, right there, may reach, you'll see that they are italicized. That means the translators inserted those. And so the top of the the, the Tower of Babel, they're not trying to build the tower uh, to where they eventually climb the staircase and look around and see God in the throne room. That's not the idea. The idea is that uh, that the heavens would be the canvas. That would be their top. uh, In in other words... um, in other words, Babel speaks of the Tower of Babel speaks of a mystical religion. It, it speaks of astrology. There's a difference in astronomy and astrology, right? Uh, they're, they're a mystical group of people. They want their horoscopes read. Uh, they want to be a part of, uh, of, of some townhouse seance somewhere, you see. And that's the idea of it, this business of mysticism. And this one-world religion one of these days will be steeped in such It'll be steeped in astrology and steeped in this uh, being able, somebody to soothsay and tell your fortune or your future. 
Go back to Revelation 17, please. There's a whole lot needs to be said about the Tower of Babel, but that's a different portion of Scripture for a different time. Notice with me again in verse number 1. I want you to I want to point out some features regarding religious Babylon during the tribulation period. Religious Babylon. John, say, John says in verse number 1, uh, Come hither, the Bible says, uh, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of uh, the great whore. I will show thee the judgment of the great whore. I may say this again before we get through this morning, but but this one world religion, all religions coming together under one umbrella, under under one uh, one headship somehow. I believe a lot of this ecumenicalism you see today is just playing into it. It's been going on for over a century now around the world. Uh, You cannot, uh, the Muslim and the Christian and the Mormon and the Catholic cannot worship the same being because we don't believe in the same we don't believe in the same God, and we don't believe in the same uh, means in order to get to God. We believe in Christ and in Christ alone and His shed blood. But one day, all the religions of the world are going to come together. You say, "Yeah, but I, I just choose to think." I'd say to you, "Yeah, but you're wrong." That's what I'd say to you. And I want to tell you something. This Bible's right. They've heaped it up and tried to burn it out and throw it away and stamp it out, throw it overboard at sea, and they can't get rid of it. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will, shall never pass away. And we get over in chapter number 20. I know a number of good men who believe when the books are opened at the white, great white throne judgment of God, it's going to be those 66. You say, preacher, you believe that? I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't doubt it a bit. Amen. But uh, you ought to take the word of God while you have breath in your body. Because one of these days, we're going to lower that cold carcass into the ground. And somewhere you will already be in eternity, either in heaven or in hell. But I was reading after Richard Kleinard. He posted something in social media this morning. He'll be in our Bible conference again this year. He always helps us, does he not? Aren't you glad that he's become a friend to our church and we become a friend to him? You may have read this as well. I thought this was interesting. It so describes the days in which we live. Listen to this. It's just uh, it's uh, four or five uh, little stanzas of a poem. Uh, the church and the world walked far apart on the changing shore of time. The world was singing its giddy song, the church, its hymn sublime. Half shyly the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow. And the false world grasped it and walked along, assuring its accents low. And they of the church and they of the world walked closely, hand and heart, and none but the master who knoweth all could tell the two apart. All her witnessing power, alas, was lost, and the perilous times came in, the times of the end so often foretold of form and pleasure and sin. Thou art poor and naked and blind with Pride and ruin enthralled, the expectant bride of the heavenly groom, now the harlot of the world. Beloved, we're headed that way. You say what you want to, but we're headed that way. Let me tell you some ingredients ought to be a part of every local church. I want to tell you something. I, I say this. I say this. I say this to preachers, if not weekly, almost weekly. I'll say to a young preacher somewhere that's going into a church, and we'll be talking, or maybe he's been there for a year or so. He'll say, what would you tell me to do? And I'd tell him, number one, get in a book of the Bible and stay with it. Start at verse one, stay with it. Stay with it. You're going to deal with things. 
if you'll stay with it, that normally you would not deal with. But it'll come up in the text eventually. And you'll be amazed at how the timing, how God's timing. Pray about it. Let the Spirit of God lead you to a book of the Bible. If it be the book of Esther, you'll be amazed when problems come up in the church, how God's timing will address that. And number two, make sure theology. Make sure you doctrinally say some things. Whether they realize it or not, say what the Bible says. Use words that you find in the text of the Bible. Say what the Bible says. Doctrine comes from the word doctrina, comes from the word doctrine. It simply means that which is being taught. We don't teach what they're reporting in the Daily Journal this morning, right? We teach, thus saith the Lord. And if you get the Bible ingrained and settled in your heart, oh, friend, listen, there's no other book in the world like the Bible, right? No other book in the world like the Bible. I'm wanting to preach a different sermon this morning. But let's just get back to our text here. The features pointed out regarding religious Babylon. Notice, if you will, notice, if you will, here, the Bible says, and we'll look at verse number 1. Uh, the Bible says something about the power and the influence of r- religious Babylon, the great whore, the Bible calls her. Look at toward the end of verse number 1. Uh, the Bible calls her the great whore that sitteth, that sitteth upon many waters. This word sitteth, it means it speaks of a position of authority. And then the Bible says that she sitteth upon many waters. You remember, we've already talked about the many waters uh, found in the book of Revelation. It speaks of the multitudes of people. So as the great whore sitteth upon many waters, that simply means it speaks of the great whore's authority being universal across this world. Again, that one world religion. Notice with me in verse number two, notice the people and alliances of religious Babylon. First of all, there's an earthly people. And then number two, there's a beastly person that's mentioned. Verse number two, first of all, these earthly people. Verse number two, the Bible says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. These kings of the earth are speaking of the those that play on the world stage, talking about princes and kings and presidents and leaders uh, around the globe. And the Bible says about them and the great whore, in other words, religious Babylon, the Bible says here they commit fornication with the great whore. It speaks of their, their interaction. One day during the tribulation period, believe it or not, friend, there's going to be absolutely no separation between the church and the state. You understand what I'm saying? Between, between religion and the world leaders. They'll both play together. And the Bible says all the nations of the earth here in verse number 2 are going to be drunk with the wine of her fornication, going to be intoxicated, going to be caught up in this religious movement. Uh, going to be taken away with this religious movement. They're all in, you see. Those that uh, will take the mark of the beast. Uh, those that have denied Christ, they're all in with this. Look at verse number 3. Notice the beastly alliance of religious Babylon. Verse number 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, the Bible says here in verse number 3, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. The scarlet-colored beast, this beast, of course, is the Antichrist. This woman is this one-world religion. And so the beast is seen supporting Uh, supporting this one-world religion, religious Babylon, or as the Bible calls her here, uh, the great whore. Uh, The Antichrist will use religion, beloved, to control, again, control the masses of the people. Notice here in verse number 3, you think the Antichrist won't have audacity 
uh, friend. You think he won't have brass on his face. Look here how John describes the Antichrist in verse number 3. Notice this phrase, that he's full uh, of the names of blasphemy. And we've already seen this in Revelation. But now, friend, the Antichrist will basically, basically present himself as the Messiah. You call himself God. Recently, you remember after the children did their Christmas play, we read from a number of traditional Christmas texts that no doubt were preached all over planet Earth, amen, during the month of December. One of those texts had to do with Isaiah chapter number 9 and verse number 6. And I couldn't help but ponder this. I think I may have said something in the service last Sunday about it. But when the Bible says here he's full of the names of blasphemy, that means he's going to exalt himself. He'll call himself the Christ. He'll call himself the Messiah. He'll be the deliverer. He's Satan's Superman. A number of us have said that and believe that. And, uh, but I've often wondered, will he actually call himself wonderful? Will he call himself counselor? Will he call himself the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? Will he do that? The Bible says here in verse number 3, having seven heads and ten horns, we'll say something about that alliance here in just a little bit. But he'll be greatly endorsed and supported by the Antichrist, so the great whore will. Look at verse number 4. Notice the look and the appearance of uh, religious Babylon, how she presents herself to the world. The Bible says in verse number 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, that's the way she's going to present herself. She's arrayed, the Bible says. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. These are colors of royalty and nobility. She'll be the envy of the world. A prostitute uh, adorns herself in such a way to allure people's attention unto her. And here she's presented as such, as a prostitute. And the Bible says here she's arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Impressed, this appearance is impressive. In verse number 4, she's decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, which speaks of her wealth and speaks of her success. This one world church in the tribulation, no telling the holdings it will have. Uh, the buildings, the lands, the properties, the employees, the, the spokesmen that, that uh, they will have worldwide. The assets of this one world church will be very impressive. Notice with me in verse number 4, notice the perversions of religious Babylon. Verse number 4, the Bible says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Here the Bible says, Having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Out of this golden cup, the leaders of the world are going to drink from this golden cup. When the Bible uses this phrase, full of abominations, we believe that to be full of idolatries. This cup is filled with, the Bible says, the filthiness, the filthiness of her fornication. That is the filthiness of her immorality, her pornea, that, uh, that which is vulgar in the sight of the Lord. I want to pause and just say two or three things right here. We all are aware of what has happened in the Catholic Church over the recent 15 years or so. The priests, the local priests, putting their hands on children, and that's some of the idea here. But they're not the only ones. Uh, beloved, there's scandals anywhere you want to look in the religious world today. You keep your hands to yourself. Keep your thoughts to yourself. Keep your words to yourself. There's some language a man ought not have 
with another woman unless it be with his wife. There's some language a lady ought never have unless it be with her husband. There's some things a woman ought never talk to a uh, uh, anybody else, unless it be an elder woman regarding her husband, unless it be to an elder woman. Titus 2, I think, would back that up, right? Be careful about all these scandals. Matter of fact, I want, you, I want to show you something. I couldn't help but jot it down. I've thought about it now for two weeks. Go with me to Proverbs chapter number 25. Proverbs chapter 25. Let me give you just a little seed thought while we're right here. Some of you young folk, don't tune me out right here. I want to say two things. Closeness is a good thing, right? Isn't it, isn't it good to have close friends? Isn't that it, isn't it good? Uh, closeness is a good thing. The Bible says a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loveth at A-L-L. He loves you at all times. She loves you at all times. Closeness is a good thing. It's good to be able to have somebody on speed dial and knowing that you'll get an answer on the other end. It's good to know if you break down in the night that you can dial that number and they'll come running. Closeness is a good thing, but do you know distance is a good thing too? Closeness is an excellent thing, and distance is an excellent thing. If you were here when I came here, probably the first three years, 90% of the messages I preached around here are either quoted from the book of Proverbs or read from the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. I'm going to tell you why. It'll get in your business. If you've got a bad attitude, it'll get in your business. Uh, If you aren't handling your finances right, it'll get in your business. If you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, it will get in your business. The book of Proverbs out of the old and the book of James out of the new um, go hand in hand, right? Proverbs is the Old Testament James. James is the New Testament Proverbs. Both of them give you heavenly principles to live by on planet Earth. And it amazes me, it astounds me, every time I go to the book of Proverbs and read through the book of Proverbs, how he gets in my business. The critics to the book of Proverbs say there's no continuity in the book, but they're wrong. They say that the book of Proverbs jumps from can to can, from here to yon. But it doesn't. You've heard me, some of you have heard me say this before. If you don't see the setting to the book, You go to chapter 1, verse 8, and you'll find three people over there in that verse. There's a daddy, and there's a mama, and there's a boy. And that daddy's leading the conversation. He's telling that boy who you ought to spend time with and who you ought not. How you ought to listen and pay attention in life. How you ought to have a work ethic and get out of bed and go do something with himself. He even teaches him how to give up in life, how to say goodbye when others move on in life. He deals with so many different things. And one of the topics he takes up with in the book of Proverbs is our friendships. Isn't that right? Who we ought to be hanging out with and who we ought not be hanging out with. Look with me. I want to show you something right here. In chapter number 25 and verse number 17, I said closeness is a blessed thing. But I want to say it again, distance is a blessed thing too. In Proverbs, I'm going to have to get out of Psalms and go to Proverbs, aren't I? Proverbs uh, 25 and verse number 17. Watch this. The Bible says, withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house. You wouldn't believe that's in the Bible, would you? Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house. Watch what he goes on. He'll give you a reason why. Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee and so hate thee. 
Are you listening to me? When you're young, you want a barbecue every weekend, don't you? You want a vacation every quarter with somebody. Closeness is a good thing. Distance, more times than not, is a better thing. Do you know you can get too close? I'm thinking quit the message, and we're going to pick up after in a couple of Sundays. I feel impressed giving invitation, but I want to say something to you as your pastor. Do you know distance is a real good thing? Some people, when they get sick, they need a supporting cast around them. I have no problem with that. I'm not geared that way. If you hear I'm sick, don't call. Don't send flowers. I don't need a box of chocolate. Get, get, get as far away as you can get. That's just the way I'm geared. That's just the way I'm geared. When I had cancer, I had just soon to spend my time reading the Bible and prayer and, and, spend, and that's how I spent most of my time. That's just me. You may not be geared that way. You messed up if you're not geared that way. <laughs> I want you to listen to your preacher. I want you to listen to your preacher this morning. Do you know you can spend too much time and it can lead to adultery? Are you listening to me? I know some people who were the best of friends once upon a time. And now they are the bitterest of, en- of enemies. Do you know if you aren't careful, you'll spend too much time in the wrong places and fornication comes from that. If you're not careful, you spend too much time with one another and gossip will be the result of that. You know what gossip is? It's a form of indoctrination. Right? Isn't that right? If, if I'm spending time with Brian Jenkins and we spend too much and we let our guard down, start talking about Donald Talent, before you know it, we'll hunt us up a third one that'll believe what we're telling uh, we may have to filter through two or three, but we'll get us another one. And then before you know it, he's out. You see what I'm saying? Have you ever had somebody tell you something about somebody and you bought into it because you had confidence in them? But you got down the road somewhere and you got to know the person, right? And come to find out they wasn't near what you had been told. Distance is a good thing, church. Distance is a good thing. I don't get involved in much around here. I just believe the Holy Spirit and God's people, if they have any common sense at all, will work things out. Even if you have to butt heads about it, you'll get it worked out one of these days. Are you listening to me? But if it ever gets to the place with the youth group, the choir, or anything else we got going on around here, that you spend more time with this than you do your own family, then you'll see me step into that. Because I have seen it. I've seen it with youth groups. I've seen it with everything else. Distance is a good thing. If a man's got a wife, you ought to go home to her. Say amen, I'll quit preaching right here. If a man's got a wife, you ought to go home to her. I don't bass fish all week in the summer. I got a wife, I go home. I have so many demands placed on my time. When I do have a chance to go home, God instituted the home before he did the church. I'll spend time at home before I'll spend time with you. You say, preacher, you're getting hateful there, aren't you? I'm being honest with you. I have a wife. I said this in a recent service. She loves me, and I love her, and I owe her. If we don't do anything but sit and watch the news or sit and read a book together, or how's your day been? Ladies, go home. You get off the job, go home. You young people, instead of looking for a movie to go to on a Tuesday night, go home. Ask your daddy how his day was. Put your arms around your mama. Give her a kiss. Tell her you love and appreciate her. You sisters and brothers that fight with one another. 
You ought to spend a little time with each other. Brian Jenkins just looked at three. One of our men reminded me of something coming out of the back room back here very recently. He was talking about uh, what a blessing it is when a dad or a mom makes a sacrifice for something that may seem as trivial as just cooking a meal. It's a lost on this generation coming. You ought to tell your mama, you ought to say, thank you, mom. Thank you, mom. I know some kids in Pontotoc County wish they had a mom do something with them. If your daddy takes time for you, you ought to say, thank you, dad. Thank you, dad. Closeness, that's a good thing. I've got some close, I've got some people I'm very close to. I've got some two or three men in this world that know things about me you don't know. And you won't ever know unless God tells you things I've struggled with, attitudes I've had. But they don't come home with me. And I don't tell them everything. Closeness is a good thing. It's a good thing. Distance is a good thing. It's a good thing. Do you know the Bible will teach you if you're running with the wrong crowd? You ought to drop them like a bad habit. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners every time the Bible says. We're going to have to deal with religious babbling next message. Let's stand.